So John wrote his book. Today we'll talk about the location where he was writing from. We'll talk about the date, and then we'll get into the purpose of the book. So where was John when he actually wrote the book? Well, the short answer is, we believe it's Ephesus. The unanimous tradition of the church says it's Ephesus. Um, one of the best sources we have for that is Irenaeus in his work called Against Heresies. He said, Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had learned, leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. This is the only real evidence that we have of where John was when he wrote the book. Why do you think that would be, why do you think Irenaeus would be a good source for this information? I've talked about Irenaeus before. It's part of it. Who was he a disciple under? Anybody know? Who was he a disciple under? Anybody know? Irenaeus was a disciple under a guy named Polycarp. You should have gone with it. Oh man, I would have grabbed the brass ring and looked like a hero. I would have yeah, it. you blew it. Well, You're on the back page. Yes. Why is it relevant that he was a disciple of Polycarp? He said Polycarp was one. He had access, direct access to apostles, right? Like yes. He was in the time frame. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. So here you have a guy who's one step removed from the apostle saying John was in Ephesus. Ooh, I got a charismatic question. Okay. They could have passed the gift to him, but he can't pass it on after that, right? Um, depends on the gift. If it was a fruitcake, he could. <laughs> Don't even ask if it was a spiritual fruitcake. <laughs> You, you know the fruitcake that goes around every Christmas, you know? You just keep passing it on? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm fine with that. Because some people say, you know, and I know it's not true. Only ones that could have done it would be the apostles, right? If they didn't. Pass on a gift. What do you like mean by that? A gift of tongues or something. Didn't they have those powers to give one time to the... No, no yeah, I would say by the time John wrote this, um, those those gifts had passed away. They were no longer needed. Okay. But it wasn't the apostles that were. It was the Spirit working yeah. through. So, like when Peter goes and preaches, and they like he's drunk, and everybody's hearing each other in their own tongues. Yeah. That wasn't Peter going here. You talk in this language. That was the Spirit came down and gotcha. gave everybody gotcha. their own language. Okay. Yeah. First uh, Corinthians twelve Being through fourteen. A 1 Corinthians 12 uh, through 14 discuss that. And it says he gives it to whoever whom he wills. So, is this foolproof that John wrote from Ephesus? No. No, it's not. There's no record other than this that he yeah. was in Ephesus. But this is the best evidence that we have. There are other people who say he wrote from Syria, Antioch, but I, there's no point in going through all those. Yeah. yeah. Some people say he wrote Revelation from Patmos. We'll get there when we talk about Revelation. So, is there a way that we can get some kind of permanent map up here so we can 
like see what's going on. It would have been good if I would have put a map in, map in there. But okay, if you have your Bible with you, yes, I do. I do, but it's not in. It's not in uh, my phone. Oh, yeah. I so can bring my John MacArthur. That's okay. That's okay. I'll yeah. Just for later on. It, Ephesus would be north of the nation of Israel. Um, up in what I believe is in Macedonia. Someone check their map, see if you can find Ephesus. Um, Antioch would be in modern-day Syria. Okay. Well, see, the thing is, is for me, that, that would help me start learning better where these right. places are. Okay. Maybe, maybe I should have put a map up there for you. I, I, I could have it. <laughs> okay. Okay, so when was John writing? That becomes our next question. And again, this is one of those debated topics. Some have suggested that he wrote in the 2nd century, in the 100s. Can you guys see any problems with that? He, that would make him really old. I'm sorry? Well, we wouldn't even... I don't know. If he wrote it in his 100s, why wouldn't Polycarp be the person who said... In the 100s, in the in the second century, yeah. Well, then he couldn't have been an eyewitness of the, the living Christ. Yeah. Because there's no way the human body lived that long. Yeah, so that's one problem. He was a young man when Christ was doing his ministry. By the time you get to the second century, if you put it after 130, you've, you've got him over 100 years old and still writing. And I'm not saying that's impossible with the Lord, but I'm just saying that's not in evidence. Um there's another problem. I showed you guys a little manuscript last week. This is P52. Dated to around 125. It has John 18, 30 through 33, or portions of 30 through 33. This is about the size of a credit card. It's wrote, written on the front and back. Um, this was found in Egypt. John wrote in Ephesus. Yeah, how long did it take to... Well, first of all, how, how long did it take to write the whole gospel? Second of all, how long did it take to transcribe? And third, how did it make its way all the way down to Egypt without coming? Because it was gonna, it's going to stop in Israel, and then it's going to spread from there a little bit. And right. I'm saying that was just a memory verse, and that the credit card fell apart. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Yeah. It's almost memory verse, but... Yeah. Lance is right. The, the transmission here is going to take way too long for it to make it all the way down to Egypt. So, writing in the 2nd century doesn't make sense, the timeline doesn't fit, and you can't have manuscripts like this that show up around 125 unless there's been a decent amount of time of circulation. Um, I don't know where I'm going on my notes here. Trying to figure out who John wrote this. In John 21, now John 21, verse 19, we have a story of Peter and John talking to the resurrected Lord. Would someone read John 21, 19? Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to them, follow me. 
Okay. Um, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to die, and you're going to die by someone taking you where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch you out, and you're going to be faithful in the end. Another way of saying, Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. Peter hears this, and being the impetuous guy he is, turns around and points at John and says, when's he dying? Jesus, uh, Peter asked for that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah that's later on. Right. Because Jesus told him he would. Yeah. But yeah, then right, right after he hears this revelation from Christ, he turns around and says, what about this guy? Yeah. yeah. And Je- Jesus had a simple answer, basically, that's none of your business. Don't, don't worry about it. That's none of your business. But look at John 21, 23. Would someone else read John 21, 23? So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So... This little saying starts this rumor. And the rumor is, John's not going to die. Now, this wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if John is 20 years old. This would make a lot of sense for this rumor to start if Peter is already gone. And Peter's already been crucified, and John is still living. This would make even more sense if John is an old man. And everybody's waiting for him to go, and he's just not going yet. Does that make sense? So your argument is that he wrote this later in his life. Right. This would be this would make a lot more sense if John is writing as an old man, and Peter is already gone. Because people would look and say, Peter's gone, Jesus said he would die. And then the, he, Jesus said, John's not going to die. Now, he sets the record straight as an old man and says, that's not what he really said. All he said is, right, business. Right, and that's what John is doing. He's correcting the record. Yeah. He's helping them understand that's not what Jesus meant. You guys have this wrong. That's not what he was saying. Peter dies somewhere around, depending on how you date it, 65 to 68 AD. I would say it's probably closer to 68. And then others say, well, it had to be written before 70 AD. Because there's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. Well, that was not the purpose of writing. He was not writing about historical things. He was writing about how you can believe. Well, he gives you the reason. I'm yeah. writing this so that you would believe. That, you know, go back to chapter 20. He tells you exactly the purpose of the whole thing before he gets mm-hmm. to 21 and talks about him and Peter. By the way, mm-hmm. one last thing. There's this rumor going around, and I want to kill it. Yeah, yeah, good. So one, that's not that's not even his argument. That's not the point and purpose of his writing. There's no reason for him to mention the destruction of Jerusalem. Secondly, it's an argument from silence. Well, this must be dated before this time because he doesn't mention this event. That's an argument from silence. And it's not a very good argument because it assumes that the destruction of Jerusalem is relevant to his readers. If he's writing to Gentiles, it's irrelevant to them. If he's writing to Jews 10 to 15 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, also irrelevant to them. 
it's past. It, it doesn't have any bearing on their life anymore. And so this argument that it had to be before 70 AD really doesn't work. So it's not in the second century. It, John would be too old. The manuscript evidence shows it had to be sometime before 100. It's more than likely when John is an old man, not when he's a young man. And it's after the death of Peter, and it's a significant amount of time, I'd say a decade or more, after the death of Peter. That way that rumor can begin. That puts it somewhere between 80 and 90 AD when he wrote this. Some people push it out into the 90s, that's fine. We saw last week the, the quotation of uh, John lived until the time of Trajan. Trajan began his reign in uh, 98. So John is clearly alive between 80 and 90. And so I think that's probably the best time um, for this to have been written. Does that make sense? Okay. It's not foolproof, but it's just getting us in, in a ballpark. Okay. Well, um, Lance mentioned his purpose. Why was John writing? Uh, John 20, verses 30 through 31, he gives a purpose statement. Someone else read John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, you may have life in his name. Thank you. So there's two parts here. The, the actual purpose statement starts in 31, and there's two parts to it. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This refers to the content of what the person is to believe. You are to believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. The second part, and that believing you may have life in His name, tells the result of when you embrace those core tenets of the faith. It's the what and the why. There you go. You come to believe that Christ is, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that brings new life. Uh, See, I even gave it to you there. Uh, D. Edmund Heber, both are essential to a full-orbed presentation of the Christian faith. He is writing a gospel, not merely a biography of Jesus. He's not just trying to give you information about a person. That is, that's part of it. But he's trying to help people believe and trying to bring about faith. And this is where we have an interpretive problem. It seems obvious from here but this is where you have a problem. And the problem is in verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The problem is found in the Greek word that's translated, that you may believe. And the problem here is it's a textual variant. And it's a textual variant that can change the meaning of the word. Here's how it shows up. There are some manuscripts that have this word, pastuate. Pastuate is a present verb. It just means so that you may continue to believe. Talks about you believing right now. Pastuate, the only difference here is that little letter. It's a sigma. Well, I mean, you can put it in white too. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's the only difference. Between the two. And you say, well, which, which one is more common in the manuscripts? Well, what's the meaning of the two? 
Both of them talk about believing. Well, I'll talk about how they're translated differently. Both of them talk about believing. And the only difference between those two is that little letter. And you say, well, which, which one is more common in the manuscripts? Well, that one by a little bit. A little bit. When they put together the, the, the Greek Bible, the Greek New Testament, the committee that put it together said, we have no idea which one is the correct one. But we lean this way. So when you say the manuscripts, you mean in the multiple translations we have of this exact text or in the New Testament altogether, which is more prevalent? The, well, Are you talking about just the book of John? We're talking about the Greek manuscripts of this text. Of this text. Of okay. this text. That's right. So in all the manuscripts that we have of this text, this is the two ways that this word is shown. This is the word that is translated that you may believe. So okay? that shows up in one way and then the other way in the same verse. No, no, no. Just depending on how many... Your let, Bible let, says it a little bit differently. Her Bible says it a little bit differently let, in English. Let me do it this way. Um, I write, let's say I'm the Apostle John, I write the Gospel of John. Uh-huh. Okay? I... I'm just going to make, let's say I use that one. You get my copy, of the apost- my copy of the book, you make your copy. But you're tired and you write a sigma in the middle. Okay. Okay? I give my copy to Lance, Lance copies it, and he copies it this way. You give your copy to Carl, Carl copies it exactly the way you wrote it, that way. Lance gives his to Kristen, she copies it exactly the same way. And now we have two different lines of transmission. We have two different ways that this appears in the same text. Okay, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Some of them have this. Some of them have this in this verse. Does that make sense? Sounds Everybody like, following me? Sounds like an early translation error that went down two separate chains because 50-50 right. if it's that close. Right. And so you have these two different views. So what do these mean? The first one is a present tense that you may continue to believe. It talks about the person believing now and continuing to believe. If this is what John wrote, what he means by that is I'm writing to you so that you can be encouraged and edified in your faith. The purpose of the gospel is to encourage and to build up believers. That's his purpose. The second one, that you may believe doesn't describe encouraging faith that's already there. It describes a one-time event of you coming to faith. And in this view, it would be an evangelistic gospel. Edification, evangelism. Yes, sir. Given the rest of that, the given the rest of the passage, it, it, it seems it would be the, the evangelism side because it does, and that believing you may have life have life, you may have life. If you're continuing, mm-hmm. you already have life. It's just stay in the faith. Yeah. I'm with you. Is it? I, yeah, I'm, with, it. I'm with you too. Makes, I mean, otherwise, why put the rest of it? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people argue for this one. I'm, I lean more on this side just because, and I'll kind of walk through my reasoning for that. But faithful men fall on both sides of this. So if you disagree, that's okay. Um, Where am I going here? It's not 
the individual word. The, the thing here is the textual variant, you can't resolve this problem by just looking at the, the individual manuscripts. You have to look at the context, kind of like what Lance said. Um, I have a long quote from D.A. Carson, but it says, He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth, the truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, the Jesus whose portrait is drawn in the gospel, but such faith is not an end in itself. It is directed toward the goal of personal eschatological salvation, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is still the, the purpose of this book today and the heart of the Christian mission. D.A. Carson looks at this and he says, the context, the rest of the book says, this must be an evangelistic gospel. Uh, one more quote, not over near as long. He, the, Leon Morris, he tells us that the purpose of his writing is that people may believe. This appears to mean that John has an evangelistic aim, and if the aorist subjunctive of the verb be read, this is beyond reasonable doubt. What is the aorist subjunctive? It's that. He says, if it's this, the evangelistic message is beyond doubt. If this is the right reading, there's no question about what his purpose is. Yeah, but that's a big if. Yes. That is. <laughs> Still, but I don't believe that. I believe the other one, and then it's like, well, you didn't convince me of a thing, because your if is, I don't, I don't accept that premise. Right. So we're going to spend a little time today looking at the purpose throughout the book, so we can get an idea of what he's talking about. Um, one of the ways we can do this is by looking at the statement again. Uh Chapter 20, verse 31. That you may believe that the Christ is... Well, this is another way you can translate this. If you just translate it a little differently, it could be translated this way. That you may believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God. You see that? Yeah, yes. Question. If you go to John 19, 35, uh -huh. he, he says... And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. Mm -hmm. Is that the same word? And if it is... It's probably the same word, but I don't know if it's the same form. That's what I'm saying. Is if, if, if it's the ARS version, then the, the, tech, the context of that seems to match exactly the context of this. Yeah. It doesn't seem like you could have one yeah. and the other. Yeah, the, the thing about that is John uses both of these to describe coming to faith. And he's used both of these throughout the, the gospel to describe encouraging people in their faith. And so it's kind of hard to do that. But I, I see where you're going. That's, that's a good point. Um, so this verse here, you could translate it that you would believe the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God. Either one of those, either Jesus or Christ could be the subject. But if that's what he's saying, that you would believe that the Christ, he's talking about the title, who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? That's the question he's asking. Well, who would want to answer to that question? The Israelites. And, and them only. Because yeah. they're the ones waiting on the Messiah. They would want that? Who is the Christ? That's, okay. that's their biggest question since the promise. Okay. But as far as believers and unbelievers, who would want to know the answer to that question? An unbeliever. Believers already know the answer to this question. They already know who the Christ is. They already know who the Messiah is. They don't need someone to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah. They already know that. Um, we can also go to 1 John. If you go over to 1 John real quick, 1 John chapter 5, same author, 
writing a little bit later. He probably wrote this in the 90s. 1 John 5. <laughs> you, you went old school today, huh? I'm out of batteries. <laughs> no time to charge. The, the nice thing about that is it doesn't run out of batteries. First yeah. John 5, uh, verse 13. Listen to the similarities and the differences here. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you hear the difference? Yeah, he's clearly talking to Christians. I am writing to you who believe. And if you compare that to what he says in John 20, verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, John 20 sounds awful evangelistic, doesn't it? Same author, same kind of purpose statement, written in almost the same way. It's not exactly the same, but it's close. The gospel here seems very evangelistic, doesn't it? Um, I have a long quote here, but I'm not going to read that. Um, and it also points out the reason for it, too. Again, it's the same the reason, eternal the eternal life. Both have the same reason that you would know mm-hmm. that you have eternal life. Right. And so in First John, he's, he's encouraging believers. He's edifying believers. In the gospel, he's evangelizing those who have yet to come to saving faith. But you can also look at this from the perspective, what does he focus on throughout his gospel? Where's his focus in his writing? And this is where your themes come into play. And we're not going to look at all of these. I'm just going to look at a couple of these. One of the main focuses he has is on the idea of belief. It's the same word. He uses it more than any other gospel writer to believe. He uses it 98 times. Uh, John chapter 2, I'm just going to show you a couple of these. He uses it to refer to accepting or believing something as being true. John 2 verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed the content of what was said. John 4 verse 21 Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I want you to believe something, accept something as being true. That's one way he uses the word. He also uses the word to encourage readers to believe in the content of the faith, the content of the Christian faith. John 6, verse 69 I'm only going to do two of each of these just because it. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Chapter 11, verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That's talking about believing the content of the Christian faith. And then there's also to believe in an absolute sense. This is also in John 11, uh, verses 14 and 15. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. That's just talking about in an absolute sense, believing. Uh, You can go down to verse 40, something very similar. 
did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Uh, there's two more, 1429 and 2029. We don't need to look at those. He's writing to people about belief. The necessity of believing. And if you put that with his purpose statement, you come to the conclusion that he's writing to people so that they would believe. A.T. Robertson said he writes to win others to, to like faith in Christ. He wants other people to come to the same faith, to the same belief that he has. And what does he want them to believe? He wants them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. If you have the question, who is the Messiah? John's here to answer your question. And even that is a major focus of his book. The idea of Messiah, of being the Christ. Um, go back John 1. I have a few of these we'll look at real quick. John 1, 25. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John includes that little bit of information because that's part of his focus. Jump down to verse 41. Speaking of when the apostles found Jesus, uh, he, that would be Andrew, found found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is which translated means Christ. John wants people to believe that Jesus is Christ. He records one of the gospel, one of the apostles saying, We have found the Messiah. Uh, chapter four, verse twenty-five. The woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. She knows something about the Messiah. Uh, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In chapter 7, people in Jerusalem questioned if Jesus was the Christ. Chapter 7, verse 26. Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. See how there's this repeated focus on who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? Uh, jump down verse 31. This will be the last one. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So he gives the people, he gives the question, who is the Christ? People are questioning it, and then he answers the question, this is the Christ. It's this guy named Jesus, and he wants you to believe in that guy. Um, back to our purpose statement for a moment. He says, therefore, many other signs... Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That's John 20, verse 30. Part of his purpose is to give you evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And the evidence he's going to give, depending on the numbers, depending on how you count them, is he's going to give signs. A sign refers to an event that indicates or confirms intervention by a transcendent power. Well, let me say it another way. It's a miracle. That's what a sign is. Jesus performed many miracles. He performed signs. 
and these signs were there to validate the message. Um, but notice he says he performed many signs. He performed so many miracles, so many wonders that John says, look, even if I wanted to, I couldn't write them all down because the world couldn't contain the books that would be necessary. John 21, verse 25, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John has a good problem. He's a, he's a writer, and he has more than enough material to write about. And so he has to be selective in what he's going to write. He only has so much papyrus to write on, or we assume he's writing on papyrus, and that stuff is expensive, and it's hard to make, and so he's going to be very um, judicious with his use of it. Uh, go back to John chapter 2. This is a, um, a story everybody knows. It's the wedding feast at Cana. Jesus goes with his mom, his brothers, and his disciples, those who were following him at the time. They go to the wedding feast. The bridegroom runs out of wine. And Jesus, verse 7, tells them, fill the water pots with, with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Now that's just like, he just passed over the most important details. When He didn't know who his caterer was. Yeah, he, he, well... <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it, I get it. He did, you're right, he just, he's out he, of he wine. He glosses over the big... And where, where did it come from? Yeah, it's like you don't even tell us how it happened. Was there some noise that happened? Did, you know, did you hear? You know, what happened here? He just says the water became wine. Verse eleven. You almost have to ask the guy that brought it to him. Did he already know it was wine? Well, it says here, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Yeah. Um. Because when they drew the water, they knew it was water. When they handed it over, the bridegroom goes, it's wine. How did that happen? That's what I'm saying. When they brought it to him, they probably didn't yeah. know it was already wine. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like they knew. Because well, yeah. if you look in verse 8, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Yeah. And the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine. So by the time it gets to the head waiter's hands, it's already wine. It doesn't even sound like the people who took it to him understood what had happened. And the head waiter doesn't seem to realize that this was water just a few moments ago. It's just like he passes over the most important details, all the details that, you know... But also that proves he's God because God provided manna. Yeah. And so it just proves he's God. Yeah. If, if we had, you know, we have people today who write about how they have miraculous powers. This is not how they would write their book. They would give all the details on how the miracle took place and what supposedly happened. And here the miracle occurs. There's not even really a mention of what actually occurred. It just kind of said it in passing and moving on. Like an everyday occurrence. Yeah. Verse 11. So that's why there's so many that happen every day that you couldn't write them all down. Yeah. 
Verse 11, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory. Um, can you want to think of a verse well, where that's mentioned? Hold on, I just had a thought too. Here's his first miracle, but he's telling the 80, 90 years later, and that's how you get the thought of he did so many. Even though this, if this was the first and he's just now telling about it, mm-hmm. it would have been a problem. But now he's writing it as everyday occurrence, even 90 years later. Yeah. So he's, I think he's talking about this is the first public miracle that Christ did for his ministry. Right. But right. he wrote it in a way that it was a common occurrence throughout his right. ministry. Right. Okay. Notice he says this sign was a manifestation of his glory. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, John, writing of Jesus, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw His glory to reveal His glories, to manifest Himself as being God. The signs were a means of validating and proving that what He said about Himself was true. The Messiah was always a divine figure. Jesus claimed to be God. Chapter 5, verse 18. The cults always say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, let's start in verse 17. Uh, The story here is, He heals on the Sabbath. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was, uh, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, he also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I thought the cults said that Jesus never claimed to be God. And this sounds like multiple times he also was calling, not just yeah. he did once. This one time he said it. Yeah, and he was continually saying it. Is what what that would seem to mean. Yeah, and these signs, these miracles, were the evidence that what he was saying was true. Uh, back in chapter two, we're still at the wedding feast. I just want to show you that to you. He finishes his miracle, and it seems that Jesus leaves. But it doesn't appear that any of the servants, the waiters, the head waiter, any of the people that were working at the wedding who knew something happened, it doesn't appear like any of them followed him. Chapter 2, verse 12, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So it doesn't appear that this sign converted anybody at the wedding feast. Because the only people that left with him are the people that showed up at the wedding with him. But his message was working. His message was working. If you jump down to verse 23, now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So he leaves Cana, he goes to Jerusalem, and he's still performing miracles in Jerusalem, and he's preaching there, and people are coming to saving faith and believing on him in Jerusalem. Does John tell us what he's doing in Jerusalem? Nope. Just tells us he's doing miracles there. And these miracles were things that 
people understood only God could pull off. Well, uh, why would he even want to say that some of these waiters started following him? I mean, he's running out of paper, right? Yeah. So he wouldn't. That that wouldn't be relevant. Yeah. Whether they went or not. It might be relevant, um, just because it might demonstrate the people were actually believing, just like he did in verse twenty-three. Like they were there for the miracle, they saw it, and they went, "That's got to be him." Yeah. Got to be Messiah. Yeah, there are other places like John six when he feeds the five thousand. They see the miracles and even tells them, "We'll look at it in a minute." You're you're not here because you believed. You just want the food. Um, so it might be relevant, but you are correct in the sense that that is in that in that limited context that is an argument from silence. You are correct on that. But if you just keep reading after this, you know, he said many believed his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. Read verse twenty four. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Yeah. So he kind of, John's saying, none of, none of what we just talked about mattered because even though people saw him at the feast and were believing in his name, Jesus said, you just, you, you're just impressed with the miracles. You still don't believe. I would say there's a good portion of the people who were seeing the miracles that were not believing. They just liked the show or they liked the bread. Then there were others who were coming to faith, who were believing, and he mentions them in verse 23. Um, I was saying that people understood that these miracles, these signs, were only things that God could do. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John 3. He comes to him at night, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God, as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That is the question in the mind. Are you just another Elijah, another so-and-so, and which God has allowed to do these things? Right. Is this the same Nicodemus that paid for the burial? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that that's a good point. This this puts them in a position of, okay, you're doing these signs. Is this because you're a prophet or is this because you're the Messiah? And John's going to keep showing them more and more signs to try to help them understand this is the Messiah. The second sign that's actually called a sign is in John chapter 4. It's not the woman at the well. John chapter 4 is the healing of the official son. Uh, and it occurs in the same place that the wedding feast occurred. Therefore, verse 46, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. There's a reference back to the first sign. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Verse 47, When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now that's interesting. This is a royal official. He's not a disciple of Jesus. Probably not even Jewish. And he hears these signs, and he goes to Jesus and says, I want you to do something for me that nobody has ever done before. I want you to heal my son, who's about to die. Modern medicine cured the first illness in, like, the late 1800s. They didn't have medicine that could cure anyone. And here's this likely a Gentile, going to Jesus saying, 
I want you to heal my son. Verse 48, So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started off. And he goes home, and he finds out that his son was healed. Verse 51, As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. Verse 54, This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. There's the second sign. He heals this young man of his illness and saves him from death. He's talking to the people, he's calling them out on the fact that they don't have a heart belief. The only reason you are, you've seen something and therefore you're saying you're believing, but you're not really, you haven't. He's identifying that there hasn't been a heart change. They're still responsible for their willingness to believe. They have no desire to believe, but they do have a desire to see the signs and the wonders. Well, that's kind of what their their attitude in John six was. We need you to stick around so we never have a problem with famine again. Yeah. Um, no, I can see this. So, it, you know, like the tent revival, the blind man drives up and eats it. Yeah. The next sign occurs in John five. We're not going to spend a lot of time. This is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. It's not directly called a sign. But it clearly is. This man is sitting by the pool, and he believes a superstition that he's if he's by the pool, and an angel will come and stir the waters, and the first person to jump in the pool, they'll be healed. And so this poor man, crippled man, has been sitting there for decades. Verse five. Uh, verse five. He's been ill for thirty-eight years, and Jesus sees him lying there. And he's been in the same condition and said to him, do you want to get well? And this guy doesn't realize who's, who he's talking to. And he says, yes, I do. But, you know, every time I try to get in the pool, someone jumps in before me because, you know, I'm crippled and I can't get in. And Jesus just says to him, be healed. Get up. And the man picked up his pallet, verse 9, and walked. Unfortunately, the one in seven chance that it happened on the Sabbath. Yeah, I don't think it was one in seven chance. <laughs> there was a little yeah. tongue in cheek there. Yeah, and, and verse 9, he ends verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Yes, that miracle points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but it also was used by Jesus to demonstrate the hardness of heart of the Pharisees in the Jewish system, that they would be offended and upset that God would heal a man on the Sabbath that he would have no compassion for him on the Sabbath. Yeah, it became, the Sabbath became, instead of a day of rest for for their benefit, it became a burden. Well, if we can't do it, how come God can do it? Yeah, it became a burden on them. You, you can't even heal a man on the Sabbath? 
And Jesus' healings were viewed as being signs. Uh, chapter 6, verse 2, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. These healings were a big part of his ministry. In John 6, 1-14, through 14, we have the feeding of 5,000. They were all coming. Famine was a major problem during that time. People starving was common. And so all these people are following him. He sits down, verse 3, on the mountain. And then he has compassion on the crowd. He sees the large crowd, and he decides he wants to give them food. And the disciples say, well, Jesus, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. 5,000 is the number of men that are present. In that day, they would not number the women and the children. So if you assume every most of the men had a wife, and you assume two children, you're probably looking at fifteen to 20,000 people. We don't have enough money to feed all these people. And so they got this little boy's sack lunch. Verse 9, five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus says a prayer. He gives thanks, verse 11, and they distributed it to the people, and each person had as much as they wanted. And again, no mention of the actual miracle. We're not told what happened. It seems like people are just kind of oblivious to the fact that he took a few loaves and a couple of fish and fed so many. Because there's no real mention of what occurs other than... They didn't say fish, fish fry today or anything like that. It's just prepared <laughs> and ready to go. Yeah. It's like he had a couple of loaves and he started breaking off the loaf and it, it never got smaller. You know? It's unassuming, just... Wow. Verse 14. Yeah, you got to kind of think about, you know, how it was done. Yeah. I mean, I saw a movie where he held, he had the basket of food and he lifts it up, says a prayer, and comes back down and it's overflowing with food. I don't know. You know, that's, that's a movie. But verse 14. Therefore, when people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Yeah. I, mean, there were, I mean, it was obviously apparent to them that it that it hadn't occurred in some other manner, right. other than a miracle. Right. They they knew something was up. I, I was pointing out John's way of writing. It seems like it's like just passes over the big details that we would want. How did you do that? They saw that and they recognize there. This is something, and I. This is truly the prophet. I think that's a reference back to Deuteronomy where it says there will be one after me, and you will listen to him. And I think that's a messianic. John 6, 15-21 is another miracle. It's not called a sign, but this is Jesus walking on the water. Uh, 15-21, Jesus walks on water. Um, John six twenty six. the crowds are back. They're following him again. We mentioned this earlier. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Yeah. You just want some food. These signs set him apart from others. People recognize he is not like everybody else. John 7, uh, verse 31 
but many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? This this must be the Christ. I mean, could you imagine a, a Messiah coming who would do more than this? These were works that normal people just cannot do. Chapter 9, verse 16. The Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. You can't tell me this is just an ordinary guy. Just another sinner. It just doesn't work. He's doing things that only someone who has God with him can do. John the Baptist was well known and loved. He had disciples. John 10, verse 41. John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. John's purpose was to point people to Christ. John had no miracles to do. Jesus is not like John. John was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. New Testament, Old Testament prophet. (laughs) And Jesus' miracles or signs were about to get a lot bigger. John 11, 1 through 16. They find out that Lazarus is sick. He's about to die. Jesus says, well, I'm not going to go. Verses 38 through 44, he goes, he finds Lazarus is dead. He tells them before they get there he's dead. Verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Jesus goes, raises Lazarus from the dead, and some of the people who are watching run off and tell the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, Verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Even the Pharisees couldn't deny the reality of the miracles. His final and his ultimate sign would be his own resurrection. Um, Go back to chapter 2 real quick. He mentions it there. Oh my goodness. We are running out of time. Okay. That's all right. We'll have another class. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They come to him. They ask him for a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews get the wrong idea. They think he's talking about the physical building. And he says, they said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. What was the point of his, what's the point of John writing about the resurrection? So the people would look at it as a sign that validates his message. What Jesus said was true. And you can read about the resurrection, John 21 through 29. We're not going to read through that. Depending on how you do the math, there are seven signs in this book, depending on how you do the math. You could argue for an eighth sign, which is the walking on water. And each sign is accompanied by a speech. 
It's accompanied by teaching. And some of these are interesting parallels. Um, Jesus turns water into wine. That is accompanied by a teaching on the new birth. He makes water into something new. He'll make you into something new. He heals the man. No, I'm sorry. Um, the royal son. He heals the royal son. Gives him new life. Jesus calls himself the living water. He heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. And proves that he is God. He says, I am equal with my father. Rest of chapter 5, he gives the witnesses to him. And one of them is the scriptures. One of them is the father himself. In chapter 6, we have what is probably two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water. And after he feeds 5,000, he then teaches that he is the bread of life. Interesting parallels, right? Chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. No, I'm sorry, I got ahead. Blind man is healed in chapter 9. In the very next, ver the very next section, he's the light of the world. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And finally, Jesus resurrected, and that's accompanied by his farewell discourse. Some interesting parallels between his miracles and his teachings. Which would also probably indicate why John chose these specific signs to right. demonstrate. Right. Because these signs fit with his teaching. And the walking on water, though, the reason I would argue it's not a sign, even though it is miraculous, mm -hmm. only his disciples saw that. Yeah. It wasn't 5,000. It wasn't the Pharisees standing in front of the dude at the pool of Bethesda. Those were signs to the non-believers. He had a boat full of believers right there. He chose them himself. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, that one's... It's a miracle, but you're, you're probably right. The, the main focus there is on the feeding of the 5,000, not on the walking on water. And that's another one that's just like kind of just stated. doesn't really... doesn't seem like anyone's really shocked by him walking on water, but... Um, Well, he faithfully took him so yeah. far, and he yeah. doubted. Yeah. yeah, he didn't have strong enough faith. Yeah, yeah. he faithed him so far. He, he, he took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink, which is a great metaphor. But um, oh my goodness, we are out of time. Probably encouraging for us who weren't actually physically seeing Jesus and maybe the same thing. Okay, so we're not going to have class for the next two weeks. Okay. No Sunday school for oh, yeah, two weeks yeah, yeah. because of the holidays. Yeah. When we come back, we'll finish John. I want to go through the I am statements. I want to talk about who's John writing to, and then we have two interpretive problems. Depending on if that's going to take a whole class or not, we'll, we'll also start the book of Romans. Okay? Any questions? No. Yeah, what, oh. what happened to Acts? <laughs> we, we already did Acts. We did Acts, okay. <laughs> All right. When, when you were going logo on 5, five, five. I look for. Does your Bible have uh, verse four? Five five. Yeah. No, they took four. His doesn't have four. It's yes. 
but it's in brackets. Yeah. So it's in brackets because it shows up in some of the uh, manuscripts, and that's probably because someone's just trying to explain why he's doing it, and a scribe went back in and wrote that later. Um, so, all right, let's pray real quick, and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you for uh, Christ. Uh, we thank you for a very clear testimony on who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, uh, that he is the Messiah that you have given to us so that we can have eternal life. And so we uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for that revelation. Most of all, we thank you for Christ. Uh, we thank you for this Christmas season that we can celebrate his birth and his coming into the world, uh, that God truly walked with us, and he is still with us today. And so we ask that you would help us this morning as we worship, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.